Hi, this is Father Bill W. here in Austin, Texas. Uh, welcome back. I am an Episcopal priest in, uh, in long-term recovery from alcohol addiction. I celebrated 46 years sober. And for the past 26 years, I've been really interested in the early history of AA, uh, how it emerged out of the Oxford group, and uh, particularly interested in their practice of two-way prayer that uh, really got lost uh, as AA moved from the Oxford group into its own entity. So I'd invite you to visit the website we've got set up. It's called twowayprayer.org. And uh, also follow me, if you could, on um, Facebook at Father Bill W. We're doing a series now on the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I think the basic question we're asking is, uh, can we learn something from the AA history that helps us each to better work our own recovery program. Uh, this episode is going to be focused on uh, two steps. We're going to put them together, and that's step eight, uh, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. And step nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. This is the second time that uh, Bill Wilson, who wrote the 12 Steps, uh, thought it would be helpful uh, to put in an extra little step there about getting ready, becoming willing. He did it in, in six as we were ready to let go of our defects, give us a little period to get, get willing to do that there, and then again in, in uh, making restitution, making amends for the harms that we had done. Uh, again, another period. Uh, let this sink in, get, get ready and willing to do it. Before we jump into uh, these steps, though, let me do what I usually do uh, in this little step series, and that's a very brief uh, um, uh, look back on, on how we got here. And it starts with the, the first three steps. I think you can lump those together. And I do that using the word connection, that the first three steps are about establishing a new kind of connection in my life. Uh, in one, I am hopeless in my addiction. Uh, I, I desperately need help. And then two and three are very quick steps that introduce me to that, to that source of help. Uh, two, do I believe that uh, there could be a God? And if so, could God do for me what I can't do for myself? And then in three, I ask him. So that's the establishment of a connection. And now steps four through nine are all about correction. If I am going to allow God's power to come into my life, I have to correct a number of things about my life. So real quickly, in four, I make an inventory of what's out of whack, let's say. Five, I share that with God, another person, and with myself. Six and seven are all about the absolutes, learning to live my life on the basis of honesty, purity, on selfishness and love. And that brings us then to eight and nine, which, which is the, the final part of the correction phase. So in eight and nine now, I am going to make amends to, to the persons that I have injured uh, in my uh, addiction and really in my life. It, it goes beyond just addiction. So let's jump into the history a little bit. I don't know that there's a huge amount that the history is going to be able to teach us from this. You know, in many ways, uh, 
we, we, we addicts have made such a mess of things. Uh, we could probably teach a few of those Oxford group people uh, some things about making amends and showing real courage uh, in doing that as well. I don't know that they have a monopoly on that, but they did have a, a slightly different perspective. And that's what I want to focus on primarily uh, in, in this episode. <clears throat> so where, do, where does it start? Uh, if you trace the history back, it really begins with Frank Bookman, since he was really the originator of what became most of the, of the 12 steps. Um, he was a Lutheran minister. He lived in uh, Pennsylvania. And the important thing about his life in this regard is the fact that he had a fight with his board of directors. He was, he was running a home for, for young men, and, um, and the food bill had gotten a, a bit large. And the board of directors uh, met one evening, and they talked to Frank and said, Frank, you're spending too much money feeding these guys. Please cut back on the, on the food purchases. And Frank, like many of us, had a, had a big ego. And his ego got inflamed during that discussion with those guys on the board. Eh? He got angry as hell. Uh, and, and he quit his job. He goes off to England <clears throat> to participate in a, in a, um, uh, a workshop, uh, a series of convention, actually would be better, uh, that was going on over there. He traveled there. And uh, what he experienced on the trip over was this. He felt the blockage. <clears throat> and I think that's an important word to, to use in relation to spirituality. There was a blockage in his life. Uh, and because he was blocked with those six guys through his own hatred, he was blocked in his relationship with God. And that, that was the thing that uh, he really finally brought out of this, uh, this um, experience of his. But there's, there's an actual equation that exists, that if I'm cut off from people, I'm cut off from God. <clears throat> and, and if I, it goes the other way around too, if I'm cut off from God, I'm, I'm going to be cut off from people. So, he has a spiritual experience. He has a, an experience of the cross. Uh, a woman is giving a sermon on the power of the cross. He said she didn't say anything new. He'd heard it all before, but somehow that day it was a new reality for him. And he got in touch with, with uh, the, the inflated part of himself, the inflated part of his own ego. <clears throat> Excuse me. So he goes, and very quickly he writes letters of amends. So this is this is eight and nine. He writes letters of amends uh, to those six guys on the board. I want to read the letter. It was the same letter that he sent to each one of them. He said, "I'm writing to tell you that I have harbored an unkind feeling toward you. At times I conquered it, but it always came back." Our views may differ, but as brothers, we must love. I write to ask your forgiveness and to assure that I love you and trust by God's grace, I shall never more speak unkindly or despairingly of you. In each letter, then, he included these lines from a, a well-known Christian hymn. 
When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. See, pride is the thing that uh, has to be corrected. It's the thing that gets in the way of our recovery. <clears throat> that recovery is all about opening the, the channel between myself and God. And the way that I do that is through increasing my own humility. Um, and eight and nine, of course, play a huge role in, in finding this humility, learning to live by this humility, and, and accepting responsibility for what I've done wrong, <clears throat> and then going and making amends for that. Garth Lean was a, uh, a biographer of Frank Bookman and a member of the Oxford group himself, and he coined this phrase, if you will put right what you can put right, God will put right what you can't put right. And that kind of sums it up, that we are responsible for cleaning up uh, as best we can. Beyond that, we have to leave it up to God uh, to do for us, again, what we cannot do for ourselves. Here's Sam Shoemaker, who was the head of the Oxford Group in the United States and a spiritual mentor uh, to Bill Wilson. Uh, Wilson had actually asked uh, Shoemaker if he would write the steps, but uh, Shoemaker said no. This needs to come from an alcoholic, so it's your job, Bill. <clears throat> this is what he wrote. I want to remind you that our experience of God is all bound up inextricably with our human relationships. Then he goes on and he quotes two scriptures. If a man doesn't love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has never seen? And another scripture if you bring your gift to the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, first, go be reconciled with your brother, and then come offer your gift. Shoemaker concludes, it is idle, that means useless, it is idle for us to try to be in touch with God or to keep in touch with him, so long as there are human relationships which must be righted at the same time. So there's, there's that, there's that uh, equality that my relationship with God is in some ways really determined by my relationships with people. And I can't claim that I have the one if, if, if there's damage, uh, blockage in the other. And the other, it's usually in the human relationships. I know... Uh, the way we handle this in, in, in our 12-step programs is, uh, you know, we make a, a list of uh, people that we're angry at, uh, that we have resentments towards, and, um, and that often becomes the basis for this list that we're going to uh, make in step eight. Already got the names. Uh, they're, they're the ones that we talked about in, in our fifth step. And for me, one that came up really strongly was my own father. He was one of my deepest resentments. My dad had been a, a very serious alcoholic. Um, I experienced a lot of physical and emotional abuse uh, when I was gro growing up. 
And uh, in the course of, of that fifth step, uh, what I got from uh, the fellow I was doing the step with, uh, Floyd was his name, <clears throat> he told me the craziest damn thing. He said, now I have to go and make amends to my father. <laughs> and I got to tell you, I was shocked. You know, I'd spent most of my life waiting for my father to pick up the phone and make an amend to me. But he said, no, that's not how this thing works. And that's straight out of the, the, the Oxford group history. I mean, that's the lesson I, I want us to learn from, from, from the historical view on this thing, that, that uh, we have to be responsible and make amends for our own anger and, and resentment. Hey, um, story that just to kind of fill it in a little bit was, uh, when, uh, I remember when I was about eight years old and my, uh, two sisters and, and I were, were at home. My mother was there and there was a great big fight. My dad was drunk and he broke up all the furniture in the house. And my mother grabbed us, uh, we're living in New York city and we went out onto the sidewalk. And, and we lived up on the fourth floor and I, I could wa I would watch as people were going by and they would hear the noise coming, coming out of our living room window and, and, and everybody walking by would look up and I was absolutely humiliated, embarrassed. And, and I remember saying to myself inside, didn't use words, but it was really to this effect, you know, you son of a bee, you are never going to hurt me again. Boom. And what I did that day, and it had been building for a long time, is I put a block, I put a cement block uh, up against him uh, so that he could not get through to me. <clears throat> the only problem with that, it seemed like a good plan at eight years old. The problem was that nobody else could get through to me either. You know, if, 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 uh, if I put that blockage there, uh, it doesn't really uh, know how to discriminate. And so lack of love really became um, my, biggest, uh, my biggest problem. So what I did is as I went to, uh, to make an amend to him, went back to New York City, uh, and this, this is the God's honest truth, I had to go three times. Uh, the first two times, I couldn't do it. I'd get there. And, and the anger, the resentment, it wasn't healed. Uh, it would well up in me. And, and I couldn't say the words. And I got back on the plane and, um, and didn't do it. Uh, the third time, I knew I had to get it done. And I went and I said it. And what I, what I had to say was, uh, you know, please forgive me for being a rotten son. I uh, did not talk to him about being a rotten father. That wasn't important. What was important was that I, I had been a rotten son, and I had withheld my love from him, and I did love him, and I had to say those words. And once I did that, uh, it did not have a great effect on him. You know, we never know what what the amend is is gonna is gonna produce, but it did it did open me up to to new levels of relationship, and to put that that particular relationship in, in the healed category. So I think that's the kind of radical sorts of forgiveness that, uh, that Bookman was interested in, in helping people achieve. He was out, uh, to really change the world. 
You know, uh, that, that was his thing. It, it was to change individuals at first, but then those individuals had to go out and make a different world for us to live in. And in Bookman's day, not unlike maybe today, well, definitely like today, I think the Christian religion had lost its power to really transform people. That, that uh, we've made our religion into more a set of beliefs rather than uh, a set of practices. And, and the beliefs are not going to change anybody. But the practices can change people. And Bookman was at the height of his popularity uh, right after World War I. And this is so important in understanding the Oxford Group uh, history. It was that period after World War I when millions of people had been killed, when war was unlike any war that had ever been uh, fought previously to that. And rising up uh, were um, isms, uh, philosophies, that uh, um, movements that were out to kind of kind of take over the world. So you had fascism in Italy and in Spain. Uh, you had communism in um, in Russia and, and in other countries. You had Nazism in Germany. You had unbridled capitalism. You know. Uh, uh, in the United States, uh, which is still going pretty strong. And Bookman said, if there isn't a new kind of Christianity, then there is going to be a second world war. And that's the way you have to understand uh, uh, Bookman, and you have to understand what the aim of the Oxford group was. It was to find, develop uh, a form of Christianity that was powerful enough to radically change people so that uh, the world could, in effect, be changed. Um, He wasn't successful. Um, uh, World War II came along, and um, I did a little search on the statistics. 50 to 80 million people, somewhere in that neighborhood, 50 to 80 million uh, were killed. Uh, as a result of of that war, it, it was it was more devastating even than World War One. Um, things had to change. Uh, one country, Switzerland, was uh, was neutral during the war, and it had escaped a lot of the damage, the carnage that had happened uh, throughout Europe. And fifty families in uh, in Switzerland. Uh, got together, they collected uh, monies, and uh, they bought uh, an old hotel. It was a beautiful hotel. Uh, it was in a town uh, named Co, C-A-U-X. Uh, it was a grand hotel, but it had fallen into disrepair. And, and, and their idea was to create a place for the Oxford Group where people could come from a war-torn Europe and and learn the principles that really we take so much for granted uh, in our 12-step programs, but where they could come and learn how to forgive. Um, so the Oxford Group people began their, their, their um, journey to forgiveness in Europe by bringing together the French and the Germans who had been at one another's throats for the longest time. 
Bookman, Bookman got uh, the leaders of Germany the lead, after the Nazis, after the war, and the leaders of France uh, to meet, to come together, uh, and to begin uh, building uh, a new Europe, a new alliance, and, and to build it based on um, uh, forgiveness. <clears throat> so there's a famous story of a, of a, a woman... Uh, uh, by the name of Irene Loray. Uh, she was in the French resistance uh, during World War II. And she came to hate the Germans just like uh, many others did. Um, she hated them with a passion. But then she attended a conference at Coe after the war, didn't know that a group of Germans were going to show up there too. And uh, when they did, uh, she needed some time uh, to go inside herself and find uh, that place of forgiveness. So I want to play a little uh, segment of her story. It's told by an Englishman by the name of Michael Henderson. Uh, he's a writer and uh, a longtime member of the Oxford group. So here's uh, Michael Henderson. Irene Law was a nurse from Marseille. She was a great European. Between the wars, she'd had German children in her home. But when the Germans invaded her country, she joined the resistance. She saw her comrades killed, her son was tortured, and she stayed with us when we were living in Oregon, and she told me that at the end of the war, she just wanted Germany wiped from the face of the earth. Well, she joined the political struggle. She was part of the first intake of women members of parliament. She became secretary general of the Socialist Women of France. And she was invited to this center. She accepted with alacrity. She was looking forward to good food for her children after the war. They were emaciated. Never crossed her mind there'd be Germans there. But when she arrived, and she heard German spoken, she heard a hundred more Germans were uh, due, she wanted to leave, anything to get away. Uh, and uh, she ran into Bookman, Dr. Bookman. He asked her, what kind of unity, you as a socialist, what kind of unity in Europe will you ever find without Germany? Well, she retired to her room. She spent three days and three nights wrestling with the question whether she'd be willing to give up her hatred for the sake of a new Europe. When she came out, nobody knew what had happened. She said she'd like to speak. She was given the opportunity. She told the audience, including a large group of Germans in one place, what she'd been through. And then she said to them, will you please forgive me for my hatred? And she told me how she put out her hand and a German woman came up and took it. And she said it was like a hundred kilos being lifted from my shoulders. She says, she said later, at that moment I knew, I literally knew, that I was going to give the rest of my life to take this message of forgiveness and reconciliation to the world. She and her husband invited to Germany. They crisscrossed the country. They spoke in, I think, nine out of ten of the land parliaments. And everywhere she repeated this apology. And you can imagine what it meant to the Germans, rather than someone pointing the finger of blame, her taking that approach. A number of years ago, I had an opportunity to travel to Co. I attended a conference there with people from all over the world. <clears throat> to the best of my knowledge, I was the only uh, recovering alcoholic in the group. We had about 80 Christians and 80 uh, European Muslims. They formed the bulk of the community uh, attending that conference. And it was uh, after um, um, the attack on the Twin Towers uh, the hatred for the Muslims was really growing. Uh, 
of course, in this country. And uh, the idea was to get people together and talk to one another and understand one another uh, and focus on on forgiveness. Uh, we also had a group of indigenous people from Canada, uh, and th those folks had set up a teepee on the back lawn uh, of the of the hotel, and uh, they had ha had their land stolen from them by the government for hundreds of years, and just like we had stolen the land uh, from uh, many of the native tribes uh, in this country. But in Canada, something different happened. After hundreds of years of blaming and justifying and rationalizing on the part of the Canadian government, the Prime Minister of Canada publicly apologized to the tribes on behalf of the Canadian people. Um, the chiefs from uh, some of the tribes were there. Uh, they addressed our group, uh, dressed in their ceremonial robes, and they read the letter from the prime minister. And as they did, you could see the tears rolling down from their eyes. Someone finally had owned up honestly to all the injustices that had been committed against their people. And then they too had to apologize for the hatred that existed in their hearts. There was another group there, and this one really touched me because they were from Sierra Leone. And I don't know if you've seen that movie Blood Diamond, but it's it's the story of um, of the um, the civil war that raged uh, in Sierra Leone for well over ten years um, and just decimated the the country. Um, kids were out there with machine guns uh, killing. Um, their uncles and brothers and all, it was madness. People had murdered them, you know, by the hundreds of thousands. And, and now they were coming together to attend this conference because they needed to learn how to forgive. And I think one of the reasons that it, that group affected me so much was because I had been in the Peace Corps almost 50 years uh, prior to that. And I was an alcoholic. I was a drunk. And, um, and I had done things in that country uh, that I was deeply ashamed of having done. And um, I, I needed to apologize uh, to the chief on behalf of his people uh, for the, um, the things that I had done. Um, and I got to tell you, it, it was an amend that was uh, years and years in the making. Didn't, didn't even think I was ever going to get a chance to do it. Uh, but when I had the opportunity... Uh, I took advantage of it, and and I felt uh, so much so much different, uh, so much better. Um, one one history lesson that I think we can take away from the Oxford Group uh, example is this: if a harm is personal that's committed, it can and it should be handled privately, personally. But if a harm is public, then the amend that's being made needs to be public as well. You know, this is what South Africa went through uh, after apartheid. They had to heal those deep, deep wounds uh, that had uh, torn their country apart for, for so many years. I mean, how many public amends do you think are owed in this country? Uh, how many might be owed by corporations? 
who just put greed ahead of everything, and by churches who who turned their backs on people they should have been uh, advocating for and helping, uh, to mention nothing of the hate groups that still exist in our country. You know, how would it be if some of our politicians ap- apologized for their lying and for their spreading of, of hatred? Of course, in AA, we have no opinions on outside issues, <laughs> but outside issues uh, can really eat us up and they can destroy us morally. Uh, I want to share one other little piece of history here, and that is related to uh, Dr. Bob, because it's it's probably not as well known as, as it ought to be. And this is from, I'm taking an excerpt here from Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers. It's an AA publication. And, uh, and so Bill and Bob had met, um, uh, and, and, and Bob had gotten sober for a while, but then he went to uh, a medical convention in Atlantic city and he got drunk, uh, on the way down there, stayed drunk for a number of days, came back and had to, had to do a surgery. Um, and that's where the story picks up, um, and Bill, Bill was still in Akron there. On the way to perform a surgery, Bill steadied his friend's hand with a bottle of beer and a goofball. Before entering the hospital, Bob told Bill, I'm going to go through with it. Bill thought he was referring to the operation, but he wasn't. He was actually referring to making amends, something he had avoided doing. That afternoon, Bob did not return home. His wife, Ann, and Bill were filled with dread that Bob had gone on another binge. When Dr. Bob returned late that night, he told his frightened loved ones that he had been making restitution to people to whom he had been too afraid to admit his alcoholism. Bob S. never took another drink. AA's anniversary is not the day Bill Wilson stopped drinking, nor the day that he met Dr. Bob, but the day that Bob stopped drinking and made his amends. We can be thankful uh, for the path the Oxford Group uh, people opened up for us. Uh, As addicts, we've done more than our share of harm, and we've left uh, a trail of destruction um, pretty wide in in our wake. There's a lot in the big book uh, and in the 12 and 12 on these steps. Um, So my my point here isn't to to teach people how to do them. It's just to take a little little few things from the history that might bring them more uh, alive for us. So I encourage us to all go and read them again and see if there's someone out there uh, that I still need to go and ask uh, from them their forgiveness. Close with a few lines from the big book at the end of this, uh, related to these, these steps. The alcoholic is like a tornado, roaring his way through the lives of others. Hearts are broken. Sweet relationships are dead. Affections have been uprooted. Selfish and inconsiderate habits kept the home in turmoil. We feel a man is unthinking when he says that sobriety is enough. The spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. And part of that living it is really uh, tending uh, to the amends, uh, to the restitution that we have to make 
Um, I hope you found something uh, in this episode to be of some help to you. Appreciate your listening. Um, Try to spread the word uh, if you think these um, messages would be helpful to other people. That's the only way we're going to get this around. So meanwhile, thanks for, for listening. God bless and keep coming back.